Hello, hello. I don't know. The music's still going because I'm watching the show on the side. So that threw me off. Great start right here, but that's okay. I am going to just jump right in because we have so much content to talk about today on this live stream episode of Press Play. Tyler, whoop, that's not right. Let's switch that around. There we are. Tyler joining me today for this we're back to live streaming, which I'm super excited about, to be honest. Tyler, how are you doing tonight? Not too bad. I'm excited. I mean, this is probably, of all the lists we've ever made in the history of Project, this is one of the ones I slaved over the most, and I'm still not happy with it, and we're going to argue about it a bunch. That's for later in the show, but I'm just getting that out, getting that energy out now, just so that Can people I... know what's going to happen. Right, right. So we do have a very specific theme for today's episode, but uh, as we always do on our flagship podcast, we talk details about other things happening, um, specific things that are relevant to immediate happenings. Like, let's say, maybe drop a little personal one here. Happy anniversary to Aaron here as we celebrated yesterday um, was our anniversary. Tyler, you were there for the wedding. You were you were standing. I was there for the wedding. The wedding. It was a whole. Yeah. It was a whole week. We had it, was, uh, it was an eventful week for sure. Um, so I, I uh, alluded that I might uh, do a nice little shout out that made a little graphic for us too. So uh, to keep her, to keep uh, nice, her as nice, part of nice the show. Of the, nice use of the lasso tool there. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, my head's a little rough there. Um, I was going to say there's a little bit going on there in the head. So, <laughs> uh, all right. But yeah, that was personal i don't know actually this other stuff could be personal things too because uh one thing that dropped this past weekend we've been arguing about i did want to talk a little bit about the movies that have hit the theaters dungeons and dragons you a bit excited for it i i don't know orion my son is excited as well so everybody I, I else is gonna go to see it this week favorable yes i was okay, gonna go so see opening it. weekend i have not seen it yet i'm gonna see it this week but i have talked to many friends um, many of them, you know, tabletop RPG veterans, aficionados, you know, people who have heart, strong feelings about this sort of stuff. And I've not yet heard um, a bad thing about it. I've heard some middling reviews or some, but most everyone I've said it says it's fun. It does. It makes some really fun nods to people who are deep in the D&D world, especially kind of that Forgotten Realms, like IP, that Forgotten Realms, like world building, but also just like, there's talk about like various things. Like there's a character who does the thing where it's basically like, oh, the DM's friend is in town for a couple for a couple weeks, so he's just like enters the party and then leaves. Can like a lot of just kind of like things that are very clearly written in a way that from the outside are meta, but inside work is part of the story. But I like all these people. Um, I like um, John Francis Daly and what's his other co-director writer. I like I like everyone involved in it. I'm excited to watch it. And as we've talked about on this podcast and other Project Nerd, I'm one of the biggest Chris Pine nuts out there. So I'm here for it. So well, 37.2 million for the opening weekend, which is domestically for one. And for two, I those numbers compared to old podcasts don't sound that big, but post-pandemic, that's pretty big. It's it's not Top Gun or John Wick numbers or Avatar numbers, but uh, that's not a bad first weekend. And it's no. still trending and, nicely and you say that and i think this is the first and obviously we're getting into we're, we're getting close to obviously the prior to the pandemic the movies the blockbuster movie season went from like july august to 
you know, May, July, August to June, July, August to May, June, July, August. And now it's, you know, however long. But this is the first run of weeks in a row that the theater has started to feel like it felt pre-COVID. We've got John Wick. We've got Air. We've got Super Mario Brothers, Dungeons and Dragons. Like there's more than one or two movies in the theater right now that I will probably go see, which is it's probably the first time I've been able to say that in a really long time. It is. It is. I'm taking the kids on Thursday tomorrow, which it drops tomorrow. Um, speaking of John Wick, I did go see that one opening Thursday. Its first weekend was 78 million domestically, which was pretty, again, pretty big numbers for post pandemic. Uh, as of today, it was 125 million domestically, almost a quarter of a billion globally. Uh, have you seen this one yet? Have not seen that one. I, I know that you're busy. I'm, I know you're a busy guy. It's it's not it's partially busy. It's partially like living somewhere that I don't really live and like trying to figure out like I don't have a theater right now or anything. So I'm trying to figure that out. But uh, I also don't have anyone to really go with. So I don't Fair. have a problem going to the movie by myself. But a lot of these movies are typically movies we would make an event of, especially like Dungeons and Dragons, John Wick. So the only like big new releases I've seen this. I've seen Tetris, which I really enjoyed. It was a lot of fun. Really? Okay. And uh, that's actually pretty much it. Is that a requirement for you to see Tetris? Like, do you have to see the Apple Plus movies? Is I definitely don't. But I was—I remember seeing the—I remember seeing the—I I remember seeing the trailer for it and being like, "I'm excited for this." So I did. I—I um, I feel like it's been crammed down my throat. I'll get to it eventually. John Wick was the second best in the franchise, in my opinion, behind the first one. Uh, the first one is here. The other ones are fun. Um, as they go along, he gets more and more bulletproof, more and more crazy things happening. Right. So it's, it's good though. It's, uh, my son was complaining after we left about certain things of it that are very John wick type things. And I'm like, if, if you weren't expecting, but exactly by the fourth, by the fourth one in the franchise, if you're not, you can make that joke. You can make that joke, uh, after the first one, but on number four, you knew what you were signing up for on this one. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So you're exactly right. Wick's still in theaters. Tetris is in theaters. Uh, Air is about to drop in theaters for, you know, Sneakerhead's a big one. I tell you Mario. what, I'm excited about Air. Air is one of those ones where if you told me the premise, you told me the cast and the director, and then you showed me the first trailer, I'd be like, is this a real thing? Like, is this, is this a joke? But ha- seeing interviews, subsequent trailers, and just the buzz, like, it's got like hardcore. I mean, it's way too early to say, but it's got like hardcore Oscar buzz right now. Listen, or at least I, awards buzz. I I know people like to knock on them, but I love me some Affleck directed films and some I, Affleck starring I, films. I one hundred percent do too. But then you saw like the first shot of him as Phil Knight in like the tracksuit and the glasses right. and the hair. It's like what the, what are these guys doing? <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, some other big announcements this week, too, of course, or last week now at this point. Scott Pilgrim uh, maybe comes up later. I don't know when we get to our main topic here of cult classic films. Uh, but it is a Netflix has gotten the rights to an anime uh, promised to be in the animated style. That's why I went with the comic book art here for our graphics. Uh, complete the original cast completely coming back for the voice cast here. Uh, you're a massive Scott Pilgrim fan as well. How are you feeling about this? Read all the comics, played the video game. Um, they're also, it looks like they're getting the, um, I'm going to, I'm going to mispronounce their, and Anna, Anna Managuchi, 
which is um, okay. the band, basically the band that did that. They're very popular for their like video game chip tunes. They did the music for Spot, Scott Pilgrim, the beat em up side scroller video game. They're coming back to do the soundtrack and new songs for the anime, as well as getting literally everyone back, as well as Edgar Wright being involved um, and O'Malley being involved. So, yes, I'm incredibly excited about this. Right. And we are live, people. So those of you watching, you can comment on our Facebook page. There's the Facebook Project Nerd group. I think you have to give some permissions to get your name there. Obviously, we're on YouTube and Twitch as well. I'm looking at the Facebook page to the side. There's some weird thing about stars. I think Facebook's wanting me to pay. I don't know if that limits the comments. It limits us being able to see them through that channel. But either way, definitely give us your two cents on all these things we're talking about. Movies, Scott Pilgrim anime, or something I know Tyler and I are both excited to talk about too. Um, it is the last Ronin. Let's talk last Ronin video game. So it is um, actually... Doug Rosen, who is the senior vice president for games at Paramount Global, because Paramount does fully own Ninja Turtles now for a little over a decade, I feel. Uh, they're putting a game out that's going to be themed around a pretty solid uh, miniseries comic, darker, more more uh, older audience oriented. And uh, Rosen is likening it to the God of War franchise is how the gameplay should be. Uh, I'm, I'm interested. I, I'm, I mean, it'll it'll do what my other video games do, Doug, Tyler. They... I will buy them, download it, and install the updates, and then set it on the shelf and probably never get to it. But that's that's still a compliment for me. That means I'm excited. Yeah, I'm curious. When I heard this announcement, it made a ton of sense. Obviously, The Last Ronin is one of, I mean, IDW has done some amazing stuff with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles over the. IDW has done some amazing things, comics in general, but done some amazing things with the Ninja Turtles in the last, you know, five to ten years. The Last Ronin is one of the best. I was actually talking about the Last Ronin to someone just the other day. Like, if you haven't read it, 100%, five issues, go pick it up, read it. It's a, I'm not going to say it's a quick read, but it's a, it's not, it's pretty, not, it's pretty not, quick. But um, this is, I mean, we've gotten such a, after a long time of not getting much, I feel like we've gotten a glut of um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We had Treader's Revenge as well as the Cowabunga Collection last year. We've had all these new comics. This is, I'm very excited about this, but yes, as got meet God of War. I was definitely in my head. I was picturing it as more of a like Arkham Asylum kind of game, but as a God of War game, I could, they're in the same kind of action RPG genre. I can see it though. So I'm I, want, I just want Mikey to start calling him boy, have somebody follow over around and call him boy by the end of the game. If we're going full God of War, right? Um, no, this, it, it should be pretty exciting. It, it looks cool. And I, I agree. I picked it up. I waited till the five issues were done, got it in trade. Um, kind of happy I did. I picked up the hardcover one, and so it sits nicely on the shelf. It's a it's a it's a pretty it's it's for gosh you you are the same. We're, we're we're same age. Adam, who's usually on the podcast with us, right there too. We grew up on Ninja Turtles. Everything from it to where we can even excuse the the third uh, the Turtles in Time movie and. Um, Listen, it's, the Turtles Die movie has some good stuff in it. That's what I said. We could excuse it. It's, I mean, um, basically, it's, as long as you if you cut out all the turtle stuff and just show the scenes of Casey Jones with the samurais in modern day, it's a it's a it's a modern classic. <laughs> Everything else is kind of rough, but point being is we love us some Ninja Turtles, and this definitely is for the the older fans, the fans that have been there for a while. Uh, but yeah, read it. I agree. And then go play the game when it comes out um, or 
do what I do and buy it and put it on the shelf. That's a, that's, that's how things work around here. But uh, that's mostly for the big news. I didn't have time to create graphics for it, but I real quickly touch on it. Obviously we've had, I would say four big trailer drops. Um, we did get it as a second trailer um, for the Marvel series. Uh, it, sorry, starring uh, Samuel L. Jackson, bringing back all of them. Secret, secret uh, Invasion. Secret Invasion. And we did get the first trailer for DC's Blue Beetle, which is due out, I think, end of summer. Uh, we've got a pretty solid teaser now, more so than just the, the kind of gimmicky teaser for Barbie. And we did get the updated Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse trailer as well. <sighs> they were, they, I mean, there was a lot. The Barbie... I'm I've I've always between like the cast and Greta Gerwig. I was I was mostly in on Barbie just to see what they were doing with it. Now after the trailer, hundred percent. Oh gosh, so much. Um, Blue Beetle is a fine trailer. It has some really good nods to the character of the comic book. It's not a great trailer. It almost, as I said, someone earlier today, it feels like someone put a big budget paint job on one of the like not great CWDC shows. And even the That's best fair. CW DC shows, not great, but like on one of the, the, but at the same time, like I, I have high, I have, I've almost said high, I had hopes for this movie and I didn't have high hopes. I had as high a hopes as you can have for a DC movie. <laughs> I hope it's better than the first trailer makes it look because, but if it's not, it is what it is. Um, Secret Invasion. I just, I don't know. Secret Wars and Secret Invasion is such in and of itself a, crazy wild convoluted storyline in the comic books and it's it's a very big like i don't want to say cop out but it's very rather than like write anything interesting in that series what they would just do is be like oh by the way this superhero for the last decade has actually been a scroll like with no like there's nothing to they just it's always been this way and it was very like there's a lot to it plus the the differences between the mcu and like the main comics are, you know, there's like things have gone different. The, the scrolls come in. It's all very different. I don't, I'm here for it. I'm going to watch every episode of it. I don't know why I'm like, but I just, it seems very, I'm curious how they're going to make it coherent and concise and get from point A to point B and not like one of the biggest complaints of a lot of the, the Marvel TV shows on Disney plus has been they're too long and there's a lot of filler. I don't know how this one, is it going to fit everything it needs to fit into? I don't know. May not. May push it into the films. Let's just. Let's, I'm not going to do anything. Spider Verse is <laughs> is amazing. Watch the Spider Verse trailer. I, I was already a million percent in on a sequel to Spider Verse. I didn't need to see anything else, but I loved every second of it. So also completely in, and I told you earlier when we were talking about it that I'm not going to watch it. I did end up watching it right after I watched the Barbie one. Uh, looks fun. There was a few fun things as you pointed out. But I, I am gonna I'm gonna retreat back to all of all the things we're talking about here. That Barbie trailer, Gre like you said, Greta Gerwig directing, co-written with Noah Baumbach. This is then all of a sudden you saw like I knew the cast was gonna be. I didn't realize some of the people that were gonna be in it, but it was just it is uh, taking the approach of it's uh, gonna be tongue in cheek for sure. It's it knows what it is, and I'm pretty excited for that though. Uh, yeah, Blue Beetle, it's it's just hard. DC's got to, I feel like they got to prove something at this point. Um, the trailer just didn't do enough for me to say they are. We'll see. But that was, yeah, a big week of trailers. And uh, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with what you talk about, Tyler. We've got a bunch of movies finally hitting the box office. We're starting to fill up 
the every weekend slate again. So the trailers are starting to drop for the late season releases. It's a, dare I say it, movie season again. Getting pretty excited for that um, to check it out. Um, but we're, we're going to talk movies, just not new releases. I do, I do want to get into it because we both know we're going to spend too much time here. Far too much time. Um, but I want to start by talking about why we picked this subject. And this Saturday, I'll be hosting a little get-together with some friends to celebrate Rex Manning, Rex Manning Day. Day. April 8th, Rex Manning Day. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, this is a, a slightly modified version of the, uh, the group here for Empire Records. Tyler and I might have made our way in there. Uh, Empire Records uh, came out 1995. April 8th is Rex Manning Day. And actually, it's uh, I have a little note over here of that uh, Ethan Embry, who um, plays this guy. Actually, that Tyler's peeking out from behind there. <laughs> he plays Mark. Uh, he did note that the reason April 8th was chosen for Rex Manning Day after the fact is, I didn't know this till recently, Tyler, is that's the day uh, that Kurt Cobain was found uh, after he passed away. So huh. April 8th is kind of paying homage to Kurt Cobain. Um, so I was like, okay. 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 Um, that, I'm surprised I, I, I was not aware of that piece of trivia, but it definitely makes sense. So that was it. Was it was interesting? There's a few other fun notes uh, for Empire Records fans, or for those who are aspiring Empire Records fans, uh, that I took uh, down was uh, obviously they were only going to film a couple seconds of the "Say No More, Money More" Rex Manning video, um, but they were on a beach and they had the cast and crew. They ended up filming the whole thing and actually edited it down. So there is a four and a half minute video out there. And if you do own the Blu-ray release or you go back to the DVD, I believe it's called the remix re uh, edition. You can, you have that music video in your extras. Um, this one always still bothers me. Coyote Shivers um, was married to Babe Beal at the time, making her Liv Tyler's stepfather while they were in the movie together. So Coyote Shivers and Liv Tyler playing similar age characters in this movie uh, were indeed stepfather and stepdaughter. That's really interesting. Um, but one of my favorite pieces of trivia is a big plot of there is AJ, who I took over his body here in our little image, uh, is wanting to confess his love uh, for Corey, which is Liv Tyler up there in front. And he checks his watch at one point in the movie at 1.30, and he is committed to tell her at 1.37 that he loves her. At 136, so exactly six minutes after he checks his watch of runtime, she shows up on the roof where he is already. And seven minutes after he checks his watch, he confesses her love. So they actually timed that well in the editing of the film. So kudos, team. Uh, Empire Records, of course. Here is the most interesting piece of trivia that I just learned today. Rotten Tomatoes score 31%. This is not a loved movie, apparently, on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it's it hit at a very specific time for us. You obviously watch it every year. I have not seen it nearly as many times as you have. I have seen it many, many times. It's, it's not a great film, but it's, <laughs> it's fun. It hits a lot of really specific notes around that period of the nineties. I put it on the same kind of tier for another one that hits super hard for me. That's not on this list, but is uh, can't hardly wait. Can't hardly wait. Yeah. Is that that is that is another also an uh, but it has that like list of people who are all like they're all about to be famous. They're all going to be like it's a who's who of people who are going to go on to have careers and like and it hits a very specific time of like that late nineties high school era. You go back and watch it now. The nostalgia is too strong for me to dislike it. Not a great film, but I love it. This is in that what? same kind of vein. 
Ah, oh, whatever. It's such a great movie. Guilty. It is. It's, it is. It's a guilty pleasure. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's definitely not. It's definitely not high cinema. There's a reason Let's, it's in the cult classic films list. That's the thing is we didn't want to spend all all episode talking just about Empire Records, or, or maybe I did. Maybe uh, we figured other people wouldn't, especially with that 31. percent So we decided to spin Rex Manning Week, as we will call it, uh, into cult classic films. So we're going to talk cult classic films and yeah tyler you kind of brought it up at the start of this episode we made lists so we made lists of our top five cult classic films uh cult classic is obviously uh I mean, you could argue what that it is, means it and is what it is illy, it is it is ill-defined i would say the best <laughs> definition that i could make the best elevator pitch is it is a movie that was not necessarily critically critically well-received or made much money at the box office. But after its original theatrical release picked up a very devoted following on VHS and or DVD and or laser disc or beta math or, or in like midnight showings and stuff like that and has since gone on. The problem with that definition is, is there's a lot of movies we're going to talk about. There's even a lot, a lot of movies on our list who I think there is a period in their life in which they were a cult classic, but because of being such huge cult classics have since transcended that and just become movies classics. that are no. in, in retrospect are now more well-received and or are super influential. There's at least one on my list. That's like, it is the cult. It is one of the cult classics of our generation, but I don't even know if you could still call it a cult classic because of how right. influential and how like well well received it is now in retrospect. And a lot of these cult classics were not obviously Empire Records. Some of them were critically acclaimed. They just didn't make money and then went on to. But then there's some that are like you could even put in this box where, I mean, there's people who put movies like Shawshank Redemption in this box. Shawshank Redemption made literally no money at the box office no one went and saw it it's a prison movie based on a stephen king novel called with redemption in the title and then you go on and then it's but then it goes on to tv and it goes on to vhs and becomes one of the most beloved movies literally of all time i don't know anyone would actually put it in the cult classic movie but by the definition i feel like it probably is well, I think um, uh, you touch on some good points there, and you're right. We're going to talk on some films that aren't. Um, as I was doing some research, because I wanted to make sure there wasn't anything that I left out or went over, and I think you did the same, and we talked about it ahead of times. There were definitely some lists we ran across that included films. And you mentioned Shawshank. I ended up starting making a whole second list, which I'm going to bring up first, as I call it the don't count movies. And obviously, you might dispute me on some of these based on where our conversation will go. Um, we talked about before we started recording Blade Runner. It's showing up on a lot of lists, but I we feel, especially with how well-received sci-fi is these days, you can't really call it a cult film anymore. It's a, it's just a straight-up sci-fi classic. Yeah, it, it even not so much sci-fi class. It's it has a weird cult status. One, because now there's like 17 version cuts of it that like, depending on which one you saw, it's also one of the most influential sci-fi films of the mm -hmm. last few years. Like, it's been imitated and cribbed from so many times. But at the time, it was... It wasn't like a flop, but it wasn't super well received. But there's a lot of like early Ridley Scott. There's a lot of directors we'll talk about where it's like I wanted to right. put them on the list because of some of these more experimental, you know, they took chances that now with 30 years, 40 years removed, you're like, oh no, that's one of the greatest movies ever made. But at the time, you're like, what what is this? So. Right. Yeah. Some of the other ones I put, I'll go over this part pretty quickly. Princess Bride, I saw on list that I'm like, I feel like that can't count. 
maybe and maybe it's just a generational thing because maybe it's everybody our age that's very aware of it big lebowski was one and we even have a lot to talk about with the cohen brothers because they are the, they're the when you talk about directors that toe the line uh fight club i saw on tons of lists but everybody knows fight club everybody knows fight club it's, it's also uh, generational i think too there's some that's of that too. the thing i feel like um i i feel like if you were gonna go you know that route they live would be better suited for cult classic where the thing is more carpenters more carpenter shows probably. up on a list a lot and a lot of his movies are another one of those ones that in retrospect i think that one i also saw and i think it's probably still a cult classic but i was exposed to the sequel before the the original um mm. you see escape from new york on tons and tons of lists and i would get, say that trying to get my wife and son to watch those escape from la is 100 a formative movie in my like cinema like because <laughs> but i definitely saw it before i had so no idea theaters. who snake Plissken was like there's all these references in the movie i'm like what the hell is this and then years later is when i saw escape from new york and then it all started to click together right but, that's another movie like if i was older escape from new york would 100 be on my list same with there's a lot of those older movies that would be on my list but by the time i was old enough to see them they had gotten over the hump of still being like a cult classic at that same time like right. i don't think we're old enough to consider rocky horror picture show a cult classic Ooh, like by the time well, we were seeing it like it was already doing like huge number like huge numbers in i don't know Okay, so when I, I look at our list, it, it makes a little more sense then because yours are very generational. And they're I very generational. Well, because there's there's another like we talked about directors. One director for one director for sure that I really, really wanted to put on my list, but couldn't make a case for it was David Lynch. Everything mm -hmm. Dave, David Lynch, if he doesn't do anything else, he takes chances. And then you look back at some of his movies. The problem is his movies that I think in execution and in like substance and, and content should be cult movies. But then like blue velvet, I wanted to put on there, but it like got nominated for multiple Academy Awards, Mulholland drive. I wanted to put on there, but people consider that one of the greatest movies. Like I know people for whom that is the greatest movie they've ever seen Eraserhead, I didn't, I saw way too late in my life to put there, but it's probably the biggest thing he has. It's a cult classic. We've talked about on multiple Project Nerd things about how much I love Dune. I've seen David Lynch's Dune a million times. I don't even know if it's good enough to be a cult classic. It's just one of those weird artifacts <laughs> in the 80s that people like, who so people good, have feelings good, about. So, Good point there, because Dune is the first Dune. And before actually I go here, I'm seeing comments. We're going to share your thoughts here in just a moment. So continue to comment on what you think are cult classic films. We will share those throughout the time we're sharing ours. I'm not ignoring your comments yet. I just don't want to get there yet. Um, but the Dune kind of fits into more of that cult classic of, I had a, a side list also of like Reefer Madness, The Room, you know, Faster Pussycat Kill Killer, Itchy the Killer even, which Itchy the Killer is actually a really well done and horrific even level movie, but it's, it's bizarreness and it's over the topness is what makes it considered, yeah. you know, fans return to it. And that's another question is if you set out on purpose to make a cult movie, does it get to count as a cult movie? Another oh. of my like didn't make the list ones was uh, UHF, which like, but from conception was a cult movie. Like there was no one, Weird Al and those guys were not going out to make <laughs> right. the next big like blockbuster hit. Now I think they probably wanted it to be more successful than it was, but like there was no version of that movie that wasn't going to be a cult classic. And I think you can say the same about a lot of the early filmography of like, he's going to come up multiple times tonight, but same Ra Sam Raimi is one of those people right. like 
he definitely is well, going go. out of his way to make movies that they're a cult classic before they're even in the can, you know, like they're a right. cult movie before they're in the can. So, right. I do. I do just want to point out too, for those of you commenting in the Facebook group, you have to give permissions. Otherwise you are just Facebook user. So Facebook user said evil dead army of darkness was the one I put on my shortest of short lists. Like it was almost in my top five. I hands down love that trilogy. We revisited uh, Aaron had never seen it. I took her three straight Mondays leading up to our wedding last year uh, <laughs> to go see that. It was even to the point to where I almost thought like, can we commit three straight Mondays? Because Army of Darkness was the Monday before when you guys started coming into town. Yeah. And I was like, I've got to see these. I've got to see these. I mean, but it also reminds me too of is, you know, you talk about being made as a cult classic on purpose. I think of uh, Bubba Hotep is a great one. Oh, that for is sure. So bizarre, but exactly. It knew what it was doing from the get go. Yeah. I mean, Sam Raimi three, I didn't put the original one on there, but evil dead Two, army of darkness and dark man all made like my short list as like, Oh God, I love dark man. I love dark ah, man so, so much. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, okay. So those are some we considered. I have an entire list. You did the same too. I know you did. I have over here to my left of the, what I'm watching us talk about probably about 50 movies that I either felt were borderline that I wanted to consider. I have things I have like just pages, no, in this <laughs> right? just like I have all sorts of this, notes about this. So I have movies that I've been introducing to my, you know, my son is 18 now and to my wife who did not explore a lot of movies when she was younger to the level we did. To, when I look back at how many movies I've watched, I'm now on Letterboxd and have started right. And I'm like, I have probably spent too much of my life watching movies, oh, but sure. I have things like election i love election it's so good it's so cheeky it's such a fantastic movie we talked about this one earlier too the coen brothers barton fink is just barton fink was on was like number six on my list and right? i'm upset that i wasn't so able to put a coen brothers they're another one of those directors like i'd like to put them on this list just to like because they're a director that went out there and took chances you know the coen brothers the sam raimi's the lynch's you know the i also really tried to look for an excuse to put um, I looked for an excuse to put a lot of directors on this list. There are a couple of directors I managed to find an excuse to put them on the list. I'm excited about right. that. So, well, I think, um, yeah, we've talked to other directors too. Cause, uh, one more I wanted to touch on was either, you know, bottle rocket Rushmore, that era of Wes Anderson, but that leads to a good point of another thing. When you talk to these directors, Wes Anderson is one of those ones now who has blown up so big and especially on the award side as an award darling and things that, people have started to go explore those earlier works too. And I think it, I don't know. So it makes it questionable, but it, it's, it's funny because of that after that, after the newest trailer came out for uh, Meteor City, I had a conversation with someone who's never seen a, a single Wes Anderson movie, but is familiar with, you know, the palette and the, the shot composition and like the aesthetic of them and was having to go through his entire filmography and talk about it and sitting there and thinking about it like that was very, interesting because it's one of those things where like his fame and people being huge cult-like fans of his work is what's gotten him to the point where these are now major releases right. but like in a vacuum any of the movies that he's made that have been crossover successes i would say like most people probably would consider like let's what would you say probably his most accessible movies probably grand budapest maybe Grand Budapest, it was that era after, I feel like it was, um, it's uh, the Royal Tenenbaums really kind of put him on the map. So those two or three afterwards might have definitely. Well, Steve Zissou been... was like very, like Life Aquatic wasn't super well received. 
And then, but as far as like accessible to a non-Wes Anderson audience, I would say Grand Budapest and or uh, what's the one? Moon Knight, Moonrise Kingdom, probably the two yeah. most accessible ones. But if they're released prior to Life Aquatic, prior to they're super weird, don't make any money anywhere. Right. Kind of thing. You know what I mean? So, right. We've yeah, got I mean, he's familiar... definitely. Oh, it's good. Just take us ahead with the familiar face, our old Best Buy buddy, Troy Galvin mentioned M. Night. Um, I, at first I paused, but then I thought Unbreakable. Unbreakable, Unbreakable definitely. Sure, so. I feel like could definitely be on a list of. Uh, uh, and also, too, it's worthy of making my short list, and it wasn't on there. I love Unbreakable. I know M. Night now is uh, completely different than where he was early in his career, but Unbreakable was fantastic uh, and definitely flew under the radar. Question, I guess, now to even challenge myself of saying that, it picked up enough of an audience that he did two more movies in that franchise, really, too, and kind of connected it all um, with, uh, what is it, with the, was it Split? What was it called? And Split Glass? and then Glass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's and he's tricky because he 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 got really big. He got what you would call in the business the blank checks. Like he had some small projects that didn't that outsized performance, got given some blank checks to get spent on passion projects. And sometimes those go well and sometimes they do not. And he he had a few too many blank checks bounce and had to like kind of start over from the from from scratch and has since gotten himself back up there with a lot of like some of his later work has been super well received, but there was a period of time there between like the village and the happening and stuff like that, where he was, he was radioactive yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, let's talk. We're halfway through. Let's talk our top five. Cause all of this, all of this work, all of this exploring making list was for us to say, I was like, Tyler, we have to come up with our top five cult classics to celebrate Rex Manning. Uh, day, week, whatever we're calling it, month now. I don't know. In my house, it's basically month. So we're going to go down our top five. Again, I want to continue to see that little red dot show up on the comments here. Um, is, is seeing people share theirs. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you kick us off, Tyler. So your number five film on your top five cult classic films. Put it on. Put it on the board. Just get it up there. Click, Let's do it. Clicking on it. There we so go. So this is the one. This is the one movie that I chose that could consider be considered in retrospect no longer a cult classic but it is for our generation the indie cult darling film it is the one it's like this was like kevin smith for kevin smith for his generation it was link later's like slacker for us it's clerks like this is the movie mm -hmm. that you went and saw in a theater you're like oh i could i could make this i could do this i could max out some credit cards get my friends hang out at a convenience store for a week and like we could make this movie. It was one of those first movies that early on, like him and like Tarantino was people like, this is like, he was, this is how people actually talk. It was black and white. It was low budget. It, there was something special about it, but early on you couldn't really put your finger on it. Cause if someone pitched it to you and showed you stills from you, like, what is this? Right. In retrospect, it is one of the more influential movies of the nineties and it's gone on to spawn multiple sequels and spinoffs an entire universe the view askew verse where they're all tied together and jay and silent bob and you know randall and all these characters but at the same time like the original clerks is it still can you still probably consider it a cult classic i would say yes and no it's probably of all the choices i made it's the one that i feel the i love this movie don't get me wrong it's the one i feel least strongly about of my five Right, but I feel like it requ it it requires 
Kevin, if we're going to talk about if we're going to talk about our generation's cult classics, we're going to talk about cult classics of the '80s, '90s, and 2000s. You can't have that conversation without talking about Clerks. So I figured I'm going to put it on there. That's fair. Clerks and Slacker, as you mentioned, Linklater's uh, Slacker, both on my short list. I, I was towing the line with that too because of how I felt. Um, so I started my list in a little different direction. I, I started thinking movies that I bring up to people and I'm like, wait, how have you not seen this? And then I remember I live in a movie bubble that I've seen way too many movies as we're talking about. Uh, one of those is one that Donnie Darko. And I really consider this is because people that like this movie love this movie. Like you either love this movie or you don't know it exists, it feels like. Uh, and to me, that is kind of what I see as defining a cult classic. It did not do well. Richard Kelly did not have a successful career after this even. It, it was one of those things, uh, much like Empire Records, there's some faces you will definitely recognize that went on to be pretty big. Some faces that were already kind of big even at that time. The movie is, it's one of those ones that when I think about it sometimes, I'm like, it, that's just got to be nostalgia creeping into why I like this so much. But then I watch it again and I'm like, that's a really, it's a weird, unique and just, it is a well done movie. It is, it is kind of, it is, it is kind of better than it has any business being. To which, which version of it is your quintessential version? So I, I am pretty sure I, only I honestly don't know how to answer that. I feel like it's the theatrical version that I watch most of the time. I feel like the director's cut, if I'm remembering this correctly, tries to, um, I think Richard Kelly has a problem when he's given too much, like he, he was allowed to go back to it and started meddling with it too much. I think it takes away from some of the twist. It takes away from some of the, um, the, the like just weirdness of the few scenes, I guess would be by trying to put too much more in there. Uh, the best example I can give of of not letting Kelly do anything further beyond the original cut to Donnie Southland Darko. Tales, Southland Tales, or S Darko, even <laughs> anything post that, right? So uh, I don't know. Which do you have a preferred version between the two? I mean, definitely the theatrical version. I didn't see the director's cut until years and years later, and after that point, it was kind of. I do like this movie. I don't like it as much as some other people like it, and it is one of those movies that was on one of my lists to put on here. But like you, I was just like, no, that's not a cult class. Like everyone likes that movie. And like, then you think when you start to talk to people are like, what, what, Donnie, what, what are you talking about? Right. And then it becomes that conversation. He does. I will say for Richard Kelly, cause he's spoken about it a lot. He obviously didn't go on to do much. He made that Domino movie with Kira Knightley post mm -hmm. like bend it like Beckham. He did the Southland tales. I don't know that I can think of another movie that he did, but he does in a lot of interviews when he was talking about like his impetus for becoming this filmmaker, specifically when he was talking about Donnie Darko, he talked about one director in specific who is one of the cult guys who I wanted so badly to fit on my list and couldn't, I had like five, I had all of his movies on my list and couldn't fit any of them in my top five. And I just want to bring it up. Cause I don't know. We'll get a chance. Terry Gilliam is the king of cult movies. Yeah. And I had, I had time bandits on my list. I had Brazil on my list. I had I pretty Brazil much so everything much. Terry's ever done on my list. None of them made it to my top five, but he deserves a mention. And I might as well use Richard Kelly constantly always talked about Terry during interviews for Donnie Darko. And it, it gives me an end to talk about Terry Gilliam. So, right. That's fair. And Richard Kelly, since he's obviously watching this for the sake of it, there are some brilliant moments in both Domino 
and in Southland Tales, that whole Justin Timberlake singing the killers scene, like everything. But as a whole, it just not none of them come together like Donnie Darko. But I am excited for your fourth number four pick here. So I'm gonna move us on because this is a great film. And I was just talking I was talking about this with my son downstairs before we started. So take us. So in. this is another one, of, this is another one of those directors who I tried to find a way to put on the list. Um, obviously, this is the movie that for most, I shouldn't say for most people, this is the movie that movie buffs became aware of who Christopher Nolan was. Like this was his coming out party, at least in like the cinematic universe. And that movie is of course, Memento guy Pierce playing a guy with a memory disorder. Who's trying to hunt down his wife's killer. It is an intricate, crazy woven plot. That's being told frontwards and backwards at the same time and meets in the middle at the time, kind of groundbreaking had similar things have been done in movies prior to this, but not executed quite this well. It has that sort of, I wouldn't say convoluted, like screenwriting, like plotting is become kind of a calling card of both him and his brother. Um, but at the time it was groundbreaking. A lot of semi well-known like character actors like Guy Pierce was, you know, this is, is this, this is probably post um, LA confidential. Is this post LA confidential? Was he, uh, I, I don't, I'm trying to think year wise. Right there. It's in right that there. same period. LA so he's not, he's kind of known to American audiences, but not really. Carrie Ann Moss was like a someone you recognize as a character actor. Um, Joe Pantoliano, like a lot of really interesting people in the movie. I don't know anyone who's ever sat down and watched this movie and not enjoyed it and or wanted to then immediately watch it again and like realize to, to pick it all out, realize it does not cheat. Like it plays by its own like internal logic. And it's the last, I don't know. There are other movies that Nolan has made that, skirt the line of cult classic that have since become a big deal this is another one of those movies though that like in retrospect everyone's like oh yeah i i love memento i watch memento when that's untrue people watch this movie after they saw like batman begins or after they saw the prestige or after they saw inception but it was it was a cult classic among movie buffs for a long time like this was it did really well in the festival circuit I'm trying to remember. I, I'm assuming it it could not have made any money. At the... It did not. It, it bombed terribly. Um, we watched this recently, actually, and a couple of the fun facts that I was reading was how poorly it did at the box office. Forty million um, at the box office in 2000. But yeah, it was made a big splash. At, like it premiered at the Venice Film Festival. Like there were many critics so, singing its praises. But I want to point out, though, you mentioned it was 40 million in 2000. So that is the year after both you know, two actors in this film that were in the matrix. So like it's, it, their presence wasn't enough to even pull there. Um, fun fact, another fun fact about this one and Tyler, I'm sure you owned it. So I don't know if you know about this, but on the DVD, you could go through a whole series of like weird tricks in the menu to watch the film in the version of real events. So not in the mm -hmm. way the movie is cut, but in, in what would have happened from first to, to like yeah. last. It's a so lot. It's, it's one of those first movies where people like would do fan cuts. And then obviously special features had cuts on it. This is also, if you listen to any of the nerd cast or project nerd stuff that I'm involved in, you'll hear me talk sing wax poetic about various cinematographers this is also the first movie that really introduced me to wally fister who went on to be the cinematographer for the dark knight trilogy um inception um moneyball he did a lot he's a very he's probably one of my top you know two or three cinematographers after um deacons 
Roger Deakins. That was weird. Um, but uh, it's <laughs> a, it's well, a really well it. shot movie. But it if you go and if you're you go and watch this movie and you can see you know the makings of what Christopher Nolan is going to become. You know now he's someone right. who can just walk into any studio and say I want fifty million dollars to go make whatever I want and you can't talk, you can't ask me any questions and they're like okay. Right. Well, Gary here agrees with you, says this movie is great. Um, but I want to move along to my number four, because I think a uh, very underrated filmmaker, as you can see there, being John Malkovich, um, a Kaufman script directed by Spike Jones. Spike Jones entered the world of filmmaking uh, by being a skateboarder that was just hanging around with the Beastie Boys and decided to, yeah, I can shoot your sabotage video. That's fine. We don't need permits. We don't need anything like that. And then has gone on to do a movie like this, uh, Her, Where the Wild Things Are, which is probably one of the most beautiful adaptations of a short ch children's book. Uh, but being John Malkovich is the one here that I focus on being number four. This is another one. I almost, I could say the same exact sentence I said for Donnie Darko. It's one of those ones to where when I talk to somebody about it, I'm shocked that they hadn't seen it, or if they have seen it, they love it. They love it. And it's one of those ones too, that when I rethink about it and I think about the premise and everything to deal with it, I'm like, it's, it's, it's gotta be the nostalgia that makes me love it so much. And then I go rewatch it and it's just such a good film. It is so well done. It is John Malkovich. This is where he definitely like Seaman and himself is becoming that comedic force. I would even say like, he was just, uh, but Cusack's great in it all around, just a fun movie. And the concept is just stupid. It's stupid. It's, it's, it's so out it's, there. It's stupid, but that's Kaufman for you. That's a, a Kaufman yeah. script. And we've talked about this previously too, focusing on Kaufman. Kaufman movies that are written by him and directed by somebody else are superior than movies that he also in tune directs. true. And, and this is one of them. The other Spike Jones directed Kaufman script um, that came out a couple years after this was on my list, on my short list, and that's adaptation. Um, Nick Cage did that's... not make my top five, but Nick Cage is in about ten different movies that are on my like <laughs> short list. Um, I could that's make an a... entire cult classic movie of just Nick Cage movies very easily. Um, an adaptation would be one of the ones that made that probably the top of the list, obviously. So it's another one I watched recently. I love going God, so good. Adaptation is such a good movie. Um, so as we move along, I'm going to honestly say from my perspective of the 10 total movies we have here, your number three might be the least known one, I would say. I don't know how Philly. And I, so here's the thing about this one. This is a movie that probably, I love this movie. I've seen this movie a million times. It probably only makes my list because of recency bias. And that is, there is another podcast of which I am a huge fan called Blank Check with Griffin and David. And Blank Check with Griffin and David is a movie podcast about filmographies where they'll pick a director and then they'll do a mini series of like every director, every movie they've made. And they focus on a lot of inside baseball, behind the scenes. And they, it's called Blank Check because they talk about directors who have success early in their career that then gets them a series of Blank Checks to go and make crazy passion projects. For those of you who are unaware, Shallow Grave is a movie um, about a group of friends who find a bunch of money in this house and there's a dead body and there's a whole situation. But what people don't probably know is this was like the big coming out party specifically in England or in Britain for Danny Boyle, who would go on after this to make movies like Sunshine, Slumdog Millionaire, Steve Jobs. Danny Boyle is one of my favorite directors of all time. 28 Days Later and Sunshine are two of my favorite like genre movies of all time. 
but this is how he got his start. It's a very young Christopher Eccleston, a very young Ian McGregor, and it's a very it's a visceral movie. Like if you're familiar with Danny Boyle's style, you see like an uncut kind of edgy version of his film where it's very kinetic. It's very like in your face. There's a lot of like interesting camera moves and a lot of stuff from like up, down and up and over, but it's a very visceral film. It's a very like kind of, it's a, it's a thriller. Like it's a psychological thriller. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about the plot too much to spoil it for anyone who's never seen this movie, go and find it, pick it up and watch it. Um, But he is one of the few like he's one of the directors who I wanted to make sure that made my list just because I appreciate their work who went on to like from these small, like kind of weird out there movies. And he even has like one unreleased movie. That's even apparently weirder and out there like this alien love triangle movie that never even like saw the light of day that has all the people in it. But like you can, it's funny to watch this movie now and explain to someone it's Danny Boyle. And you'd be like, you mean the guy made some dog millionaire in millions. But then if you're familiar with his whole filmography, you can see, Mm-hmm. you can really train see the bodies of what he would become yeah because like the next big thing after this for him is train spotting which then turns into a bunch of other movies like millions like sunshine um but this is i love this movie and i didn't know who, he had already kind of been on the scene by the time i finally saw this movie i think i saw it on like a you know hbo or cinemax one afternoon and was engrossed with it went back and found it on dvd watched it multiple times and have since become a huge danny boyle fan but this is this is kind of his entry into the world's the, the consciousness of moviegoers. So if you've never seen it before, please go watch it. Right. Well, my number three is one that you've already said is we're too young for, but I don't care. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is what introduced me to cult films. I the the thing about this one is is it's so bizarrely a cult classic. And I'll explain what I mean in that sentence. This movie is is why I would say the most of even the ones that I'm about to get to of even your clerks you mentioned. I think this is the most widest known movie of the 10 we have on the list. I, I won't. Widest known. Is it the widest seen? Probably not. Who has seen it, though, is what is weird. The fact that my mom, my conservative southern mother, is the one who introduced me to this film is just bananas in the first place. The fact that this still attracts midnight screenings and this is another one if you've seen a theme with my list to where you talk to one person and people don't even know what you're saying if you bring up rocky horror picture show to another person they've been to a midnight screening they've they've dressed in a certain way they've thrown stuff at a screen they've seen something you know they it is one of those movies that the fan base for this of all ages of our generation of even the younger generation now and of course the generation this came out for is die hard about they are die hard about it and I think part of its problem was because of the material and specifically Tim Curry's uh, how he was presented in this movie is what probably kept it from underperforming in theaters. But it has definitely found a home and an audience sense. And it's very niche, very niche. And that to me is what makes me think of it as a cult classic. And again, because it's definitely a nostalgia piece. It's odd that, you know, my family is what introduced me to it, but it's something that I can revisit in such a weird way that makes makes it one of my favorites. It's it's just unique. And meatloaf, meatloaf in it. It's like <laughs> it's uh it's on my list. It's it's honestly if the only main reason I would say it's probably didn't make my top five is just because it's the easy answer. Like it Evil Dead. There's a few of those movies, especially like they're just kind of like when someone says cult classic, this is the movie that pops into your head. But it's 
it's an amazing film. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else you can say about it. It's it's fantastic. There's there's really not. This is the one I can talk about the least because you're exactly right. People who everybody knows about it. And my my only my last comment would be is if you are aware of it and you haven't seen it for some reason, I, I would say go experience it first in one of those special screenings. That's what I would say. Go, go do see that it in first. a theater yeah. for sure. See how people see how the fans react to it. See the people that dress up if for it. You live anywhere near anyone. You can probably find a late night showing in a theater somewhere, especially around Halloween nearby. Yeah. Especially closer to Halloween, but mostly year round someone showing it somewhere right. late at night. And uh, see? it's so good, but you're number two. So I had already made the graphics for mine when you submitted your five. Otherwise, you're number two. I, I almost rethought it. I almost adjusted my number five. I love this film. And if I remember correctly, this is a product of a writer's strike era too, right? Like it's a, it's, this is a wonderful one. So I'll let you take it from here. So Dark City is, I knew this was the first book. This was the first movie that was on my list. Like of all the, like, when you sent me the idea of like, Hey, we're going to do cult classics. You need to give me your top five. The first thing I did was just take a piece of paper and wrote down dark city. And then I came back days later and actually sat down and went through my movie collection, went through things. I like, I knew that no matter what else happened, dark city was going to make my list. It is another one of those movies where I don't know. So many people have never seen it. It's such a weird, even for a weird genre pictures it's a weird genre picture so for aren't familiar it's this weird dark dystopian sci-fi noir film um starring rufus sewell it's got william hurt in it Kiefer sutherland plays a really cool character uh one of my favorite actors J uh, jennifer connelly's in it richard o'brien there's so many people in it it's directed by um alex proyas who is probably best known he's an australian director he was the guy who directed the crow Another cult classic that was on my short list. Like The Crow was definitely one that I almost put on here. He also made um, iRobot. He's made some other, he's made a bunch of other movies, but probably best known for The Crow and maybe probably Dark City. It's weird. It's out there. Uh, David S. Goyer was one of the writers for it. So if you're familiar with his work, like this was early, early Goyer who went on to write a ton of superhero movies for um, DC and Marvel. But I, it's another one of those ones I don't want to spoil too much with it, but it's this weird noir sci-fi thing where there's this guy who has amnesia and he's a murder suspect. But then there's these weird guys you can see here on the left, the strangers who are everywhere. And this is, it's just, there's so much going on in this film. It's very noir. And even when it's, it's, even when it's over, you're just like, it's. Like on my Mount Rushmore, because like obviously I'm a huge genre guy, I'm a huge noir guy, I'm a huge sci-fi guy, like Blade Runner. This is a spiritual successor to Blade Runner in every sense of the word. Like this came out 15-ish years, 15-ish years after Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. You can see like those fingerprints all over it of like not quite cyberpunk, but like noir sci-fi. And I can't sing its uh I can't sing its praises enough. And the ending is is brain breaking and it's fantastic. And I, I love it. I watch, this is a movie that I rewatch at least once a year and I just, no, no, this is a great, great candidate for a cult classic. Cause it is exactly, no matter how you define a cult classic, I feel like this fit, can fit on a list, no matter how loosely or tightly you define it. You're right. Like 
I think Blade Runner, I think Metropolis, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, this brings me back to, it is one of those movies that I just didn't see. And I didn't see it like so many people. I did not see it and was in 98, I think when it came out and afterwards was like, oh my gosh, why did I not see it? No, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Well, my number two is a little bit, it's, we have already talked about news with it. It's bigger. I would ever, people give me crap for this one. I don't care. I still consider it a cult classic. And that's Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I, Which, to be fair, it's a cult classic for you because you did not go see it in theater. Like <laughs> so an idiot. Every time it gets brought up, you give me a hard time for this. We had a winter storm that knocked my power out and I had to get my freezer and fridge stuff and my child to, a, to another place of warmth. was unable to see that film um, right away. But I did see it shortly after. I did see it in theaters. I will say that. We were excited for it. I... Tyler, you had definitely read it by then. Um, I, I feel like the two of us were running around. We were working at Best Buy at the time. The two of us were running around and telling everybody to see it. Um, this is uh, something I just definitely fits the case of where you say it had its it had its error, and it was a short era of being a cult classic. And I think as ner as nerds have taken over the world as, as at least entertainment and media for a way, it has definitely gone mainstream. Um, arguments have already taken place within my house about me thinking this is more niche than it actually is. And if you go to Letterboxd, you go to IMDb, there's a pretty solid amount of reviews and, and rankings and things. It is a pretty popular movie. Why I, I mean, love the, it? The, the the two things that are tricky for it. One is obviously like it did. It was fairly. It didn't do well in the box office. Right. For right. What it, we expected. The one thing that's kind of against it is by the time this movie comes out, Edgar Wright has already made Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. So like this, almost any success this had outside of fans of the comic book and fans of some of the actors and actresses in it came strictly from people being fans of Edgar Wright. Like, he had come out of his indie... I mean, Shaun of the Dead, you could almost make a case for being a cult classic, although it's since gone on to become massive. I think his cult classic would be uh, Gavin and Stacey, like his telev like the, the television show, but mm -hmm. not Gavin and Stacey. What's the one he did with... The TV show that he did with, with, with Simon, Simon Pegg. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I it's definitely... It is a cult... I mean, there are so many people who did not see this movie in theaters who still haven't seen this movie. But the only thing I would count against is the fact that by the time it came out, Edgar Wright was, he got to make this movie because of how successful Shaun of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim, I mean, and Hot Fuzz were. I right. Think. I'll I give you that. Um, I, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know. Brian O'Malley was, was very hands-on with it too. And it made it, I think, very quirky and niche and, and kept, it's almost like a video game and a comic had a love child that came out as a movie when you really think of it. And I think that impacted it to some in a way where audiences weren't ready for that at the time. And again, as that's become more mainstream, I think too, yeah, again, you can make the argument, but you do make a good case there. I'm still defending it. I love this film to, to no end. We watch it. You want to talk about my number one movie that we talked about that I watch on the regular. I, I watch this movie. This movie's on four to five times a year in our house minimum it is it is frequently played and loved by the entire family and, and the kids have now read the, the comics everything like that so it's a good one but i won't spend too much time on it because we are getting tight on time i want to go to number one so tyler you're number one 
It's a doozy. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's it's another one of those ones that probably creeps into in this day and age almost too well known to be a cult classic, but at the time no one saw this movie in theaters. It its entire life was on DVD and VHS. It's obviously it so encapsulates just the weird like existential ennui of office work in the nineties, obviously the creator of it um, for those who aren't aware is also, I can't talk. Um, Office space was written and uh, directed by Mike judge. Who's probably will always forever be best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead and the voice of Beavis and Butthead also made King of the Hill and made quite a few movies after this, but this was like his first after not counting Beavis and Butthead, his first big movie. And at a time, at one point in his life prior to becoming like a animator and a, you know, movie director, he worked in a basically for a software company in Texas mm-hmm. sitting in a cubicle, like living this doldrum life and made this movie and it connected with a very specific. And I just, of all the movies on this list of all the movies we've talked about, of all the movies we didn't make the list, although anything that's every director, every movies that's been brought up, I have easily seen this movie more than any of those movies. I maybe have seen this movie more than any movie I've ever seen. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. It's it's a comfort film for me. I can quote literally the entire movie from beginning to end from memory. Like I love this movie so much. Um, it's hard to overstate it. I would say that probably most other movies that Mike Judge made have are more are probably more of a cult classics these days than this one is. Like. I'm trying to think other like obviously extract idiocracy. Obviously that one I think could have been a bigger movie if it didn't get like, you know, uh, buried by the buried by the studio extract. Didn't do super well. The Bateman Mila Kunis movie. Um, He didn't, I don't think he, no, he directed that one. He wrote and directed that one, Mm -hmm. but this is, it's so good. And I don't know that there's probably anyone who's watching this who hasn't seen it, but that's the that's the thing. So my argument is is one hands down. Don't disagree with you on anything. I I could put this on list if we, which I've considered Project Nerd personalities doing making a AFI style top list. Office Space would be something I would put on that list. But that's the thing is I can go into a work meeting on Monday, and if I say a line, this is my argument of because Scott Pilgrim in this one is the one my son has debated with me. He says Scott Pilgrim's bigger. I can say a Scott Pilgrim line. Maybe one person will understand what I'm saying. If I say specific lines from Office Space, everybody in that call knows what I'm saying. No, you're not wrong. I will say counterpoint, though. This movie cost $10 million to make and made $12 million in the box office. I mean, that's that's technically not a bomb. <laughs> like, so I guess, I guess, but uh, that is no, it the is, definition of a bomb. Like, yeah, it is a uh, it's a wonderful movie, and I definitely agree with you that it it had its it is if you were to look and define cult classics as a, at least having an era of being as you were describing earlier, this is definitely one of those ones and would be in an accumulative list at the towards the top, if not at the top. So yeah, it it definitely became. Um, a meme. I mean, like just a meme unto itself. Like so many of these characters, it's just it's tricky to. I don't know. I'm gonna say it's a cult following, but it definitely it has it was a cult movie for a while. But in sometime in the mid 2000s, it became mainstream. Right. So, for my number one, I was a 12 year old boy, probably a year after this came out, and a friend of mine had it on VHS. And this forever changed my life. And 
Empire Records. Screw your 31% Rotten Tomatoes. I don't care. This is this is the whole reason we're doing this list this week is Rex Manning Day. I I cannot think I can quote, I can quote, I could probably just I don't need a script in front of me. I'll just tell you the whole movie and every line that's spoken in it, tell you about all the characters. We're dressing up this weekend as we celebrate Rex Manning Day. We'll have pizza, we'll have Mark's special brownies. We'll have cupcakes because there's 24 usable hours in every day. We will have it all here for our Rex Manning party. Empire Records is just one of those films to where it's if you've worked in a independent retail environment or a smaller business, uh, I'll even say retail, in an independent um, customer service business, because I would say Pat's for you would work and something like that. You can relate to something that happens in this. Uh, in fact, the guy who wrote the movie worked for a record store. And most of the people that worked with him after seeing the movie was like, I, every one of those moments happened at our record store. It's one of those things to where if you hadn't, or like you were a 12 year old boy at the time, you wanted to work in a record store because of what this movie was doing. Uh, the soundtrack I have listened over and over and over. And I have worn through CDs on the soundtrack to the point to where I had to buy a third version of the CD and started making copies of it on my computer to stop killing my original one from overplaying it. The soundtrack is out of this world. The film is, it's not as special in terms of plot or, you know, you talk about Dark City, like what it has to <laughs> offer in terms of plot, being John Malkovich, I'll go back to. Memento. Right, those, it's pretty straightforward. It is what it is. It's just telling the story of a group of teenagers, you know, like almost adults um, acting like children in a sense uh, in a, an environment, but it's so fun and it's so great and it's just enjoyable. It's just the right level of charming and nostalgia and everything for me. And it's one that uh, as many of these movies as we revisited, we talked about, I was introduced to much later or found, you know, a different time. I was the kid when I found this one and it was just a year after it came out. And to go around with my friend and be like, this is great. And nobody in the world knew what I was talking about, especially I, I at my age. As you describe it, I think I've kind of put my finger on why it didn't resonate for me the way it does for you. And I love this movie. Don't get me wrong. One is I did not see it young enough. I mm -hmm. didn't see it young enough. And the other one is, as you were talking about the whole thing about working in a record store, that whole thing, not only did I not see it young enough, I definitely saw it well after I had seen High Fidelity. Oh, and okay, after okay. that, it's just like, what do you... It's like, this is like shitty. It's like shitty high fidelity with kids <laughs> instead of like adults. Like, what's going on here? Um, I, I did the high fidelity is great. Yes, high um, fidelity was on a, like a short list for me, and then I was like, oh no, that was actually had you know people in it. So right. No, this is this is the one, and this is the one that brings us back full circle to, of course, this Saturday, April eighth. We celebrate the legend, the washed up legend that is Rex Manning. Um, if you haven't seen any of these movies that we just went down the list for, and let me pull them all up at once here. I, I can't recommend them. I can't recommend enough them all. Not just the five I picked, Tyler. I think your five movies are fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I love, like I'm looking at all 10 of these and these are movies that I would go, if anybody I mean, was to say to me tomorrow, Hey, do you want to watch insert one of these 10 films i'm like yes the answer is I definitely immediately i yes. definitely own all of these movies i know that, yes so. yes <laughs> that that is also a yes um i mean um, at the same time i own 1500 movies so but yes any any other 
honorable mentions didn't make the lists or like concepts that we didn't get to that you want to check off your list you've got over there because i have a couple that i want to like at least give mention to i i think i touched on most of the ones that i was saying i really felt um the, the questions were, of course, if we had a lot more time, would be that early. You talked about early Cohen brothers. I think we have a clear favorite, but early Wes Anderson is bottle rocket yeah. too, too small still. And his Rushmore, the, you know, his like launching point in his cult classic is things like that could definitely be debated. But as you said, all the Cohen brothers, brothers stuff. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. It's this a, topic, the, we could the, talk for hours. The two topics, the two like other like genres that I struggled with wanting to put on the list, but like don't really fit the mold. but could be considered cult classics one is some of those very specific niche comedies of like our childhood not childhood but like of our adolescence in high school specifically things like uh, napoleon dynamite or like super troopers which are things that like have since are huge outsized influence on the culture of people our age but like no one saw those movies in theaters no one nope. to this day there's a lot of people who haven't seen either of those two movies especially like younger generations because they were a very they captured a specific moment um the other genre that i i had on a short list but didn't put any of them on here was some very specific like um anime movies that crossed over into the u.s so akira ghost in the shell some of the early ghibli stuff which for people our age are 100% cult movies. Like you had to know a guy who know a guy who knew a guy who saw one of those or got a bootleg copy of it or got like a mm -hmm. weird dub version of it. In retrospect, now they've kind of anime's taken its place in the pop culture. But like when we were kids, anyone like it was, you had to, you had to do some work to see ghost of the shell or to see um, princess Mononoke or something like that. So, right. Well, we need to wrap. We are definitely over time. Uh, we did. We did pretty good. I was expecting us to go much further with this. I topic. mean, I we could we could keep. I mean, I've got more notes. That's we can keep going if you want to go. We could, but uh, what I want to do is if we just had the ticker down at the bottom. You can still leave your comments. Uh, this video will forever live on our Facebook page, on our YouTube channel, um, and briefly live on our Twitch channel. You can head on over to any of those places. Leave your comments for what your favorite cult films are. Start those conversations in the comments. Argue with people on the internet because that's what the world is all about about arguing with people on the internet um we'll be happy to chime in as well on some of our favorites uh for the future we are definitely going to be live streaming press play going forward uh for the next few months there's a lot going on so we will be off in two weeks because i will be on a lovely beach somewhere but we'll be back early may to to do this and then uh, hopefully by the back half of the year we'll be here every other week uh talking great things and if you have ideas for topics for us Definitely let us know not only these comments, but you can message our pages as well. Um, but besides press play where you're watching us, you can pick us up on our audio feed to go search for Project Nerd Podcast or press play. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, all the other places. Of course, don't forget to check out the other Project Nerd shows, um, such as My Funny Friends and Two Guys, One Film that are out right now. We have tons of legacy content as well. Uh, another thing for those of you in Colorado, Project Nerd Film Festival is coming up in June. We are to our final deadline, so we will be selecting the finalists and announcing the schedule soon. And of course, in-person event on June 10th, and we'll be doing our live stream Project Nerd Web Fest on June 11th. And we have some exciting things to announce for the fall and next winter, including some old events coming back uh, that we can't wait to share with you. But that's it for the Project Nerd recap. Always go to projectnerd.com. That's project-nerd.com. 
um, which oddly I have that nowhere here. I just have our social media. Good, good job, Iggy. Good job. We'll update well those done. graphics for next time. Uh, but listen, you it, did a lot of work on some really, you had like the whole thing with each movie cut listen, out plus like the final, our heads, our heads are here. I know you did some work. I, <laughs> I think the final, the final graphic though, with all 10 movies, that was, uh, that's the there you go. People. There you go. It. One last time. So we are going to bow out for now. Roll those beautiful credits. We'll talk to you next time. Did Project Nerd make that? <laughs>